Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the American Scouser Podcast. I am Galley with you here from a little bit of a cold, dreary New England afternoon, but I am joined with Bickler inside the stadium. Looks like he might have got himself a haircut, half a shave, and, well, the club won. So he actually is smiling. It's amazing what happens when work has to send you out of town. (laughs) Like, listen... Uh, get get out of your cardboard box. We got some plane tickets. You need to go dust off the old jacket. Make sure you're presentable. So here I am. Brilliant. So otherwise known as he actually shaved his face, cut his hair a little bit, and put on a hat. So welcome to that. Thank you, work. Uh, Alan, as always, first one in. Greetings from a warm Houston. Bragging as usual. And Brian Shelton jumps in with an evening, guys. So... We'll get to it. We're going to start like we do every single week with no, no, we're not. Because for the second or third or fifth or a hundredth week in a row, Timuchin has decided he has other things he'd rather do on Monday nights. So therefore, we don't have to start like we normally do with some type of question that is only intended to embarrass you, which normally makes me look even worse. So it's made me actually dislike the trivia section portion of this program even more than when it used to just be designed to do its true root cause, which was to make you look bad at the beginning of every podcast. Yeah. I don't know how that's, uh, I can't decide whether we've got ratings going up because they don't want to like, you know, I'm not sitting there muttering over myself uh, or if they're down because it's just me, me and you trying to hash this thing out on our own. My favorite part is we want trivia. Alan speaks for himself, by himself, amongst two people. So for Alan and the person in his head, I'll say no to trivia tonight. Who knows? I'm sure the dictator will be back soon enough done watching beautiful football. A couple weeks ago, we joked about how we wish we were at a high school girls football match because it would be better than the football we had to watch. Not sure we can actually make that statement coming into today's match. So for once here, we're going to actually get to talking about a match that actually resembled the club I remember supporting the last few years. So before we go into any too much of the performances themselves, when this lineup ruled across your Discord channel at 159 and 12 seconds and somehow Megan in Seattle can get that shit faster than they release it in England. Um, What were your initial thoughts? I mean, I think this is sort of the preferred lineup. I don't, I don't, I wasn't really surprised, surprised by much of anything here. I thought this has sort of been the preferred lineup. Um, Certainly didn't think they were going to rush Diaz back. So yeah, I mean, we talked about it before. Like if they're committed to like really finding out what they have with Curtis Jones, that now is the time to give him that run. So it made sense to me that he's back in the lineup. Everything for the most part made sense here to me. Yeah. I I think there's always a little question. I think right now the real question is, is what are they doing with Nunez? Will they figure out where they go? And I want to talk about him a little later on. Uh, Cause he came on and he had a bright little moment and he had a great moment at the end of the match where he just showed his class and kind of a microcosm of what he can do within the right moment in time. Um, 
The Jota Nunez thing to me was a question mark with him not starting the last match. I thought he might get this one. It's not like Jota's been pulling up trees in all of his starts. So I could have understood that. Other than that, I think the side picks itself. We're going to talk a little more about Curtis Jones. How about the back line? Um, we'll, we'll touch on Kanate's little gaffe in the second half. But overall, what was your overall feeling today on how the back line dealt with, you know, what can be a pestering, if not annoying, Leeds attack? Yeah, I mean, I thought they did fairly well. In general, I thought our play was pretty compact and pretty good throughout. The tactical change with what they're doing with Trent, uh, I think certainly helps give them another outlet out of the back. Sometimes when teams do press, I think, um, I just think, honestly, I think when the midfield plays well, this back line's fine. You know, right. like when the, when the midfields tick in like it is, and we have creative outlets in the front three are pressing and, and, and creating scoring opportunities. Um, they're fine. I thought there are stretches where we looked vulnerable again on the counter, but I mean, that's just sort of the nature of the beast. Um, and I thought we recovered fairly well throughout. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was fairly happy with that performance. Yeah, I'd agree. I thought the defense played well. I thought Trent's new kind of, tucked in midfield role and it is evident too it's not even like it's a it's not just Klopp trying to like make a passing comment at a press conference just trying to like move a little bit of the attention away from things this is an actual tactical shift do you then my do question you think it's, do you think it's Trent in the, like so do you think it's functionally a back three do you think it's Trent in the midfield or do you think it's an inverted fullback role similar like what they did with I mean I think it's an inverted fullback role with what City does I just think what they're asking Henderson to do or whoever's on that right side happens to be Henderson is to basically drop in drop even deeper and move into like a right back role so Mm -hmm. I I don't know that it's a three as much as it is asking the midfielder to play more of the responsibility and allowing Trent then to see opportunities to go forward. And the amount of passes he had going forward and chances created he made today for different players on the pitch makes you question. Maybe the only real question is, is why to take this long? Um, Because clearly it almost looks like what you had to do this year. And I think it's, it's a microcosm in itself to try to just say, Oh, well, this would have been solving all of our problems earlier, but I think it almost adds into the fact that Henderson doesn't have as much of the legs as he used to have to get up and down the pitch. So asking him to cover less and Trent to do more of what he does going forward might make I think it's, sense. I think it's interesting because we were like very hesitant to do any sort of, to really sort of condone any midfield move for Trent because of his lack of positional awareness. But this is the one move that essentially makes that less important. I mean, because it basically can do what he's good at doing, and he's almost got an additional layer of coverage now. And Brian Shelton says it's definitely a confidence builder for Trent, and I would absolutely agree. I think uh, the the last couple matches have been probably – I don't want to say he's back because you can't go from being the best in the world to – arguably like outside the top five, if not the top 10 in England and then have like a match or two. And one of those be against Leeds and like, hold your arm up and be like, I got this. Here we go. Um, 
but I, I can see some real positives in his performance. And I do think he looks a more assured player. And there were a couple times he was forced to defend. You know, you mentioned them opening us up. Uh, he had a really good clearance. I know there was one where he tracked really well back and like he was the last defender who got his head on the ball and kind of kicked it out for a corner on one of those counters. And I thought to myself, like, that's almost a sign of like, how do you get Trent back into defending well? get Trent feeling like the best attacking right back in the world again. Like he, I think part of part of what we didn't give enough credit to for why his defensive woes were so poor was he was also so poor in the other direction that he had never struggled yeah. in his entire professional career. And I think it was weighing on him to the point where he started to think about the fact that he wasn't helping this side. If not, he, I mean, I think we know he was hurting it, right? He was being subbed off in the 60th minute of matches with a small lead. Well, I mean, I think he's just played scared. I mean, with for good reason. Like, I mean, you know, he's he's continually getting torched. The weird thing about Trent to me is I think that Trent is a super underrated defender in terms of a stand-up defender. Like, when he's got his back to his own goal, I think he's actually a very, very good one 1v1 stand-up tackler. Where he struggles is in the transition when he's got to run back. When he's run, when he has to turn his back on, a, on an offensive player and run back to a spot, or it's a transition where he's got to track a far post runner, like that's where he really struggles. And I think in this role, it almost eliminates a lot of that because he's sucked up into the mids and he knows that he's got the underlap on the right side. And he's also got a fairly strong center back moving over. So it's not as like it, he's not as isolated um, in that regard. So in a match where we finally show a little bit of that attacking flair, right? Obviously, um, the match is kind of ticking on. Gakpo scores the first goal. It kind of pops up out of nowhere. We score that goal. Were you waiting for VAR to take that goal off the board? Yes. I still don't understand how they didn't. I, to be I honest, don't get it. I've seen I don't know how it's not a handball. I like they're like, well, it's got to be a deliberate motion. I'm like, he clearly pulls his elbow out. Like, I mean, he wings, he bat wings it for sure. I I thought if the ball hit an attacking player's hand in the buildup to a goal, it was an automatic. It didn't matter about intent. If the ball goes off his hand and you think that it would have been called a handball and was missed on the pitch, it gets taken off. We were sitting there. uh, There was a bunch of us. There was no audio on originally. So we were like, nah, this is going to come off. This is going to come off. And then like, I just see Gakpo start running up the pitch and I'm like, because they kept the camera on him almost as if they were waiting for the goal to get chalked off and they wanted his reaction when they got the VAR goal taken away. Yeah, so the um, rule change was that you can't have an accidental handball chalk off a goal. That was like the new rule this year. The accidental handball in a in the attack of a buildup. And I think that I think what part of the reason that call was even changed was because of the Bobby Firmino handball that chalked off a potential game winner the season before. But I mean, if you look at this, I don't it doesn't fall in the realm of accidental handball to me because I think Trent makes a definite move towards that with his elbow. So anyway, fortunate for sure. Um, maybe we got that back with the mole go, which I didn't feel was offside at all. Yeah, that one, that was a questionable one on itself. Um, obviously then we get the mogul, um, you know, 
five minutes later, it's two nothing. And it really did feel like, you know, an old school mogul. He, it was his body awareness and positioning. Jota plays the ball across. It, it was almost, if you watch how Mo runs on the ball, it's how a striker like in top, top form who gets his like shoulders turned before his body comes corner. Keeper had no chance. I mean, Meslier dove purely for the highlight reel. He did not dive to save the ball. He had no chance. And Mo just buries that thing. It's two nothing. And it really did feel at that moment, like everything changed. Yeah, I think that's fair for sure. Um, yeah, we, they kind of had a bubble there where they were threatening us on the break and you were wondering if this was going to be another one of those games where we just got on the board and then it gradually slipped away. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that definitely turned the momentum. Um, man, I keep like, I keep getting this grin when I watch us, even when we're, even though we're struggling because man, with every passing moment of every passing game, I feel like Cody Gakpo is turning into the ghost of Roberto, like of Bobby Firmino. Like, there's, I keep seeing things that I never thought I would see again from another player, not Bobby. Like, just in the hold up play, the additional, like, there's like the obvious touch, and he waits a half second and catches a second one you didn't even see was there. Like, and, and just even as sort of like some of the way he moves, that kind of tall, like, he's bigger than Bobby, but that, like, he still has that long, like almost gracefulness to his game. He doesn't have that Samba thing. And in a weird way, he's got that, like, we always say that Bobby's got that blue collar thing, which is uncommon in Brazilian players. Like I see that with Gakpo, that sort of blue collar toughness. Uh, and they both started and really liked that left wing. I mean, that was Bobby did the same thing in Germany, played a lot on the left. So, um, it's wild. And like, maybe this transitions in the Nunes conversation galley, because like, for me, it's like, you know, we, we kind of made this decision as the club that we had this kid that was going to be our future for big, big money. Um, and then on a necessity, Cody comes in and I feel like kind of changes the game in terms of what that plan looks like, because I think we all thought Nunes would eventually be this big, big, tall dude in the center of the pitch. But like with the way that Gakpo holds up play, it almost is telling a manager who doesn't like to change tactics. You don't have to change tactics. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I I still think that there's every buy and every move we've made and every midfielder we've been linked to has looked to be a player. And even the young players we're right. grooming are linking to a four-two-three-one, which yep. Arguably could mean you have Gakpo and Nunez running through the middle. And if you can make them work together with Mo and Diaz on the right and the left, and, and you have a guy like Jota as your sub behind them, you're doing pretty, pretty well. Um, And, and we'll see if all that materializes, but I agree with you. I think that Gakpo's, he was great today. Not good. He was great. And he deserved even more than he got. You know, he had his, he got the goal, the assists, um, but I, I think he was a lot better than that. I really do. Um, I think there were a few opportunities that there were other players on the pitch that kind of got let down. He got let down by other players on the pitch at times. He set up mm-hmm. Mo for one in the first half that should have been a goal. Um, 
He had the great run, and obviously uh, he was called off sides on the other one. I mean, there were there were quite a few different opportunities where I just felt like he was in just just great moments of space. And I, I think in the end, we're going to look back on the Cody Gakpo signing and realize that like we got a real, real steal for the player yeah. that we got for the price that we got him at. And I think it had as much to do with his age and his size and, and just where he was coming from. And let's be honest, it's been a bit since a Dutch striker came to the Premier League and actually lit it up. So there'd been a few, you know, between Sebastian Allaire and um, uh, Memphis Depay and other players that have come with all this kind of pomp and circumstance from that league and not delivered. And I think that's what made people worry and let's be honest, it wasn't like he was coming out of Ajax as their best player. He was coming out right. as a Netherlands kid playing out of PSV, which is basically like second rate and second rate. Yeah, it's your it's your almost like your two A squad there, and it's uh it's going to be interesting. I mean, because so many of us were were so like, I, I think the majority of people that were upset with that we're necessarily upset that we went out and bought a top player that was a young player and maybe not fully developed, but the fact that it wasn't a midfielder, right? Yes. So, yes. And it, it, but in a lot of ways with the Diaz and the Jota injury, you needed to have that sort of flexibility to have an attacker who can legitimately play all three positions up top um, as thin as we were getting. And so in a lot of ways, he was in addition in an outside position that allows you to minimize one, like one more spot in the midfield because of his flexibility. So in, in a lot of ways, it was like an outside of the box solution to what's obviously going to be a one to two window, big money injection to fix. So you mentioned, um, you've mentioned a few things here. You've mentioned the midfield, you've mentioned, you know, um, what we need to be doing and how we need to look at. And we would be remiss here. We've talked about the defense. We've talked about the attack and it was good today. There might not have been anything better on the pitch today than the performance that Curtis Jones put in uh, from start to finish. And we've both been uh, very critical myself, even more than you um, since the time I've been on this podcast about what I felt were his limitations. Um, I like what Klopp is doing here. I, I, I do wonder if I'm Harvey Elliott after the run of matches I had, and I'm sitting on the bench, and Tiago and Bobby get substitute appearances this afternoon into this match, and I'm just sitting there going like, "What about me?" Like I played pretty good for a while there, and I thought I was your guy, um, but I understand here. I think he knows what he has in Harvey, and I think that's yeah. it's a different conversation, maybe for a different pot. I think it's as much what he loves and what his problem is, is Harvey doesn't fit what he wants to do. I think Jones was really, really good today. And he wasn't that far off against Arsenal. And right. he wasn't that far off to start before. I love what Klopp's doing. I would start him every single match throughout the rest of the year. If he, if his performances warrant it, because I think it is a major question because if this kid he could be the difference of not having to buy Ryan Gravenberch because you're buying that player to be 
your fourth or fifth midfielder, but that can actually give you quality performances at a moment that you need it. And if you already have that in your side, then that goes a long way when spreading out money across your transfer window and, and your commitments, especially, and we'll get to this when we talked about what this club needs. So talk to me about what you saw today specifically, Paul, but more importantly, you know, are the last two to four weeks starting to sway your mind at least into the fact that this kid deserves at least the summer and maybe next season to see if he could fill a role at this. Yeah, point? it sure is. My thing is, I just don't know. Okay. So what I think is best for the club and what's best for Curtis Jones are probably two different things. Like my thing is, is like, yeah, I, I think you know, we talked about this being the stretch run to be able to make a decision on Curtis Jones. I and mean, he's certainly making a show of it. And he's certainly proving that he should be under consideration for that sort of death role on the squad for sure. I look at this game and I saw you know his performance on the left and then he switches over to the right for a 15 minute swat and is just as effective, just as good. Uh, super good job of keeping width on both on both sides, playing touchline to touchline, which is like was critical for the shape. Um, I, I I kept thinking to myself, I would love to go watch games from earlier this year and late last year when he was so atrocious. Like, cause like I don't like you say you love what Klopp's doing. Like I don't really see, I don't see much of a like change outside of the way that he's reading spaces and anticipating plays. And so like, I don't, I, I I'm curious as to, to your opinion as to like, are, is there some sort of a, like tactical tweak to his, to his starting position that's impacting this? Like, I just don't see a whole lot, but I also don't really remember uh, other than outside the fact that he was shite when, for the last greater half of the year and a half here. Yeah, I think my thing was always his his decision making was always so poor in critical moments that I always felt like he had a major error in him at any second. And there were even a couple times today that at times he looked like he was going to stand on a ball too long or maybe get caught under his feet like he likes it, like because he's thinking about the the trick or the flick that he can make. And and that's what kind of makes him a special player when he's in and around the box. He can actually make something happen because he thinks about it a step ahead that maybe some of the other players we have don't. I feel like his decision-making is better. I do think he's being asked to do a little less going forward. Um, and maybe that's because our midfield is so shaky right now that every player that's out there knows their first job is to like anchor down and just kind of be stable. I also think, the fact we've seen two good Curtis Jones performances coupled with probably two of the best Fabinho performances back-to-back that we've seen yeah, also kind of makes sense. It, 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 it comes together and, and he's out there with Henderson. He's not out there with Tiago running all over the pitch, trying to make 70 yard diagonals and getting caught out and stepping into the wrong areas to try to, you know, thread a pass that still won't lead to an assist. So I, I think part of what is happening here is, is we have a little bit of a semblance. You know, you say the back line looks better when the midfield's playing well. Well, the midfield plays better when the midfield's playing well. I mean, really, it really comes down to Fabinho, right? It's almost always comes down to Fabinho. We said that. Like, when he's bad, we're bad. Like, 
it's been that way for as long as he's been here. And before he was here, we were just bad because we didn't have a player in his position that could do the job. We would rely Mm -hmm. on Lucas to do it and he'd do it. And then he'd get hurt for two and a half months. Then he'd come back and remind us, wow, it's really good when you have a number six. And then you get hurt for two and a half months. And I think that's why more than anything, I still feel like the, we can buy all the box-to-box midfielders and we can buy all the attacking threat midfielders or right-sided covers. If we don't buy a stalwart, top-of-the-Premier-League-level defensive midfielder, we'll be fighting to be between eighth and fifth next year, too. Because no one wants to hear this. The best defensive midfielder plays at United, and we all laughed at him when they spent 70 million pounds on him. And Madrid's been trying to replace him since he left with two eighty million pounds. I, I gotta guys. be honest though, like at his age, I'm shocked how fucking good he is. It's but, ridiculous. And kind of like I'll Modric, where up. you're like, kind of like Modric, where you're like, he doesn't look any worse than he did eight years ago. Like, right? I'll hold my hand up and say I was one of those people who felt that way. Yeah. But he is the best defensive midfielder, and and Rodri's probably a close second, and Declan Rice is up there. And this is the point. There's a team in a relegation scrap right now with a better one. The Brighton team's got a better one. I'd argue right now, Douglas Louise is a better one at Villa. I mean, if you start going through the league, Caicedo at Brighton. I mean, there, it is literally littered. And you can see how it affects everyone else on the pitch. And whether it's, you know, I don't think you can hope that Fab gets a year older and it just comes back and he can play 40, 50 matches at this level. He just reminds me like when he's at his best, he reminds me of a lighthouse. Like, like he's just like, do you know what I mean? Like he's like that center point, that center focus that keeps everybody sort of grounded and safe. And he's just back there cleaning up, but it's almost like he's directing traffic. Um, I guess the American term would be he's like quarterbacking from there. You know, I, I just feel like he just really at his best is just gracefully cleaning up and, and putting everybody in the right spots. And yeah, when he's, as he gets older, you can just tell man, like, you know, he had a fall today where he gets the, the sort of the yellow where he's just so incredibly late. It's almost comical. You're like that. And, and it's just, you can see it sort of fading. So he's got his moments, right? I mean, he's been playing better lately, but you know, it's not forever. Yeah. And, and for all the Tyler Martin talks and the Bastardix talk and all these different things, great players might play roles into the side, can offer depth and great opportunities in cup matches. For me, to be fair, I was in on Tyler Morton until you showed me the picture of yourself with him. Makes it should, it should make everyone <laughs> worried. It made everyone worried except and the people in the crowd that were like, is that guy on the left the professional footballer or the one on the right? And everyone was confused. Um, it was it was shocking as we walked by and I was like, oh, wait, I'm taking a picture with a pro athlete who literally <laughs> weighs 15 pounds less than me and I weigh less than your 12-year-old son. Um, so he's got a long way to go, but we'll see where he gets to go from there. I'm most worried, um, but they, they need to sign. In my opinion, that's that's signing number one. Like for me, it, it it's it's the number one need. And if 
I know there's some in our Discord channels that you know don't want to hear about Declan Rice to Liverpool, and he's not a good enough quality. It's good enough for me. Um, the Irish have I, feelings I, on everything. It's okay. That's true. That is true. Um, <laughs> I just I he he's one that I would have no worries with if he, if they signed him. I'd I'd be fine with Caicedo. I I don't think that it's a bad idea to look inside the Premier League for this buy. Cause I think it is a different position played in every league across the world. I mean, you know, we joked earlier when we talked about Gakpo, my only issue with buying Gakpo was his last name wasn't Sangari. If his last name was Sangari in January, I would have thought it was like the signing of the year. Cause I wanted that signing in the summer. Uh, and then when that didn't happen, I was like, well, maybe we can sign this midfielder. And they were like, Oh, we're getting this guy from PSV, but it's a left winger. Um, but it's working out <laughs> great. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm all for it now. So any last thoughts on the Leeds matchup before we talk about a few other topics some transfers and some other. No, I was goals. afraid that would happen and we'd pile on the goals. Cause now it's going to be another th- three weeks until we score again. <laughs> it is tough. Good. I always get nervous when we have a day like today, cause it does make you feel like, Oh, we're back. And then we'll just roll out next weekend and we'll just lay an absolute lay an egg. egg. But I will say it is nice to go on the road and get three points. People don't realize that's only the fourth win in the league this entire season. And uh, that is not something easy to stomach when you're a club like Liverpool and you're so used to winning. So as we look here forward, let's first remind everyone about the American Scouser fundraiser that we are doing right now to support uh, the causes for the children and families of Turkey and Syria. They need our help. I'm going to post a link right now to the donation page. Um, no donation is too small. If you can afford a dollar, five, if you could do 10, we really appreciate anything. If you can't contribute, we completely understand that as well. Please take a moment, share the link. Put it in a local Facebook group if you have other Liverpool supporters, if you know like-minded folks who might be willing. Every person who sees this increases the opportunity for someone to help send funds and, more importantly, help the families in need. Um, You know, we talk about this club as being a global community and a global family, and I think moments like this bring that to light more than ever. Um, To go along with the donation links, there is also, as you'll see on all of our posts and pages, a silent auction. I'm sorry. Yeah, a silent auction of a great amount of different prizes. I think there's 37 different items up for auction um, with some really great valued items out there. So please donate some money, get yourself some LFC swag, and please help us as we raise funds to help those who are bestrucken um, with this tragedy. There's nothing worse than, I, I can't imagine anything worse in this world than thinking about being like at home with your family and having something of this level of magnitude hit you with no preparation and no way of being able to really rebound. Because honestly, there aren't the resources that we have here. And that's why we're doing fundraisers like this. So we hope it gets out there and we hope that we will be able to raise lots of funds. It's never an easy transition off a topic like that, but we'll go to a topic that, well, 
has been talked about so much. No transition could be wasted. Shoot Bellingham to Liverpool. So it came out last week, Paul, that the club had officially ended its pursuit of Jude Bellingham. And to be honest, I don't normally take much solace or credence in reports like this, but the club and the manager did little to make me think that they hadn't. Um, Their reactions, their responses, and the people who were saying it are the normal talking pieces that speak for the club. Um, You know, Lynch, Joyce, Ornstein, um, you know, to a lesser extent, Pierce nowadays, now that he's not working for the Echo anymore, but they all trumpeted the same message, which was the club had decided too many purchases would be required and therefore this would cost too much. So I ask you, is this bullshit, paper speak, or more importantly, a message to Jude? I I don't know the truth to how this came about. And the timing is really weird because the report, there was a report that broke in the morning that essentially we had launched an initial bid. And there's a report four hours later that Liverpool are officially out. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? So, like, that indicates to me that somebody picked up on some sort of activity on one of their camps that involved Liverpool, whether it was Liverpool in communication with Dortmund or whether it was Gakpo's, you know, representation reaching out to Liverpool or having a conversation with Dortmund. It, it indicates to me that somebody picked up on something and ran with with the story. Um. I mean, this time of year, that could be as simple as Joyce running a half-truth and hoping to stay relevant. Uh, you know, like, I mean, these guys um, live off these types of, of breaking these types of things. So I think there was some, there, there's, I think there's some fire here regardless. I find it, there, there's, it, it doesn't make any sense to me that Liverpool would make anything public whatsoever, like in this. Whether good or bad. Like, I think, like, like if you announce anything publicly regarding this, uh, you don't win as a club. Like, what you're, what essentially Liverpool would be doing here would be handcuffing themselves to this negotiation and then handcuffing them in any potential negotiation with everyone knowing full well we need a midfielder. So it makes no sense that anything Liverpool would break anything. Like, to me, it makes sense that Liverpool would just – be as quiet as possible and let the, the stuff come out of the player's side. Um, so I don't think anything that happened within the last two weeks has affected this transfer one way or the other. I appreciate that. Thanks to That's very sweet of you. Tamuchin jumps in with what's up fellas. Clearly the soccer match of quality performance is over. You know what this is? Uh, this is a, who is, is the new guy and where is Bickler? He clearly missed the opening where Galley made fun of the clean shaven and haircut Bickler. I really think that this is just a, this is him making fun of my double chin in a very passive aggressive way, which, which is fine. But, um, and, and this is really what I was looking for, which game was update. the update on Layla's update. Uh, huge Liverpool win followed by a great game from Layla with a sweet goal and a three, nothing win. Happy Monday. Congratulations, Layla. 
we always love to hear that you've had a wonderful Monday and that you had a great performance. So congrats on your goal. I know you don't have too many more matches uh, left this season, but good luck to you and your teammates the rest of the way. So I'll respond to your comments with this. I agree that I don't think that this is over. And I've said that all along in discord. I, I actually was on record mid season earlier before the winter window even started that I could see Dort, I could see him staying another year at Dortmund. If it meant making the best decision for his career. For me, it all changed when Klopp talked the way he did this week. It was, and we're going to get to his comments and what our opinions are on those comments. But he went out of his way to actually start the, the damage control for the club when not getting Bellingham. And I heard a funny interview earlier today from one of the guys on the Anfield rep, and they used the, the Klopp Ferrari quote. And they said to him, like, did you, did you like Klopp's quote about the Ferrari? And he's like, I actually thought it was silly. I thought it was stupid. He's like, but as a Liverpool supporter, I've listened to them. Like, we've been asking. They've been telling us they were going to buy us a Ferrari for two years and to just take the goddamn bus. The problem is they're now telling me this summer, I got to keep taking the fucking bus. And until they replace it with a different car, I am going to ask for the Ferrari, even if it makes me an idiotic kid. And it, and it isn't a bad analogy because ultimately they have been telling us that we've been waiting for this transitionally generational talent. My problem is they've never told us that that was Bellingham and they were going to spend that kind of money. They said when it was time, they were going to buy the right player and big players. And if you believe Ornstein's reports, and there's no one as tied in in England in transfers. He is like Fabrizio Romano in, in Europe. Ornstein in England has the inside track. And I thought his report this weekend was pretty telling. They're not out on Bellingham. They just aren't going to be able to pay that money this summer. If there's an opportunity to buy him in the future at a right price and he wants to come, they'll go after him. But for now, they're going to spend a really good amount of money to rebuild the squad. But if they spent all that money on one guy, we'd end up with four other relegated players and everyone would be questioning who Andy Robertson is all over again. So I don't think they can do that. I think they have to go buy four to five players that average around 45 to 60 million pounds. And you can't do that and spend 150 on one guy. I, I just don't think it's realistic. And I think Klopp told us as much. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I hate the Ferrari analogy because like we've seen, we know we've tracked this throughout the summer and we, we literally saw him pass on four Audis, you know, <laughs> like, so it's like, yeah, you didn't get the Ferrari, but we had opportunities to get decent, decent replacements and didn't uh, and that wasn't all down to the ownership i think there's more money there from the previous window so like i i don't i'm not under the i wasn't one and i know i'm in the severe minority if we had gone out and bought bellingham i don't believe that it means that we would have addressed 
or picked up more players. I think it's there because we had an additional 75 million from the window before that we had tied up in Chuamini when the Nunez deal was going on consecutively at the same time. Both deals were not dependent on each other, and one fell through and one went through within a week of each other. So that to me, and they were very public about those two deals not being hinged on each other. So that 75 mil, I believe, is there in the coffers. I don't know what's available this summer, but I think that, you know, they've known and they've been ready and they've been, they've had the money. I just don't, I don't believe that it's, it was going to be Bellingham or, or, or bust. But that being said, I do think that like, I get the feeling Bellingham wants to come to Liverpool. And I get the feeling that is his parents care more, like he cares more about legacy than he does about money. And so I think he understands what that means for his options. And I think if he, if, if you're right and the club is like, Hey, we just have too many, it's not Bellingham and another midfielder. It's Bellingham. You know, it's, it's, it's three to four midfielders, potentially a right back, potentially a right attacker, a, a, a central defensive midfielder and perhaps another center back. You know what I mean? If it's like, if that's how they feel about it, then that does make sense. So I guess I just was, I've, I'm of the ilk is that we were just going to dump into Bellingham and have a, like a couple new pieces and try to ride it out another year with the, with a lot of the parts we have. Um, so do I, do I prefer this strategy of waiting on Bellingham? For sure. If I know we're going to get him, I don't know that we're going to get him. I don't think, it, you know, obviously nobody does. I, and I'm still not confident I guess, he won't move this summer. I'm nervous. I'm still nervous that he'll yeah. end up at City, but I'm nervous that he would have went to City even if we went in for him. Because we don't, I don't know. So here's the thing. If we were in for him, I don't think, I don't think he goes to City. Just based on, just based on all of the footage that we saw with that England team during the World Cup. I, I get all that, and I, I've I've seen a lot of that stuff. We've all seen that stuff and heard that stuff, and then, you know, Kylian Mbappe wants nothing more than to see the next level of his career at Liverpool, and he comes to the club and he goes to three other clubs, and then he's like, "But I'm a kid from Paris, so I'm going to PSG," and it had nothing to do with going to Paris. But it had nothing to do with going to Paris. He wanted to go to Paris because he's getting paid the most amount of money, an obscene amount of money, and he knew he'd have control, like. This is what these players do. And I just, I've always said, like, I'll believe it when the players, you know, when the players doing the Liverpool lean, as we like to joke, like, that's when, you know, right? When they're holding up the jersey and, and they're on top of the building and you know what's happening. When it comes to Bellingham, if he comes here, it will be outstanding. But I don't believe this club can wait for Bellingham to fix all their problems. Because I think what this season showed them was, Paul, they weren't Jude Bellingham and two low-level signings away from refreshing the squad and running it back with the guys they have. I think they need a five-six player. And I think they I know they that. not only need players, they need a plan to replace Virgil van Dyke in a year. They need a plan. And these might even be a year faster than they anticipated needing to replace these players. They may need to replace Robertson before they need to. And Van Dyke, and and I think with that, you, I think there is somewhat limitations to the funds, and it's why ownership keeps looking for more money. Why, you know, and I think it's why the manager. Well, I guess this will transition us over to 
the next kind of slide here. I think it's why the manager is talking the way he is. So these were quotes that came out of the embargoed portion of his press conference. Uh, it's not about Jude Bellingham, but I never understand why we talk about things we theoretically cannot have. We cannot have six players in a summer, everyone for a hundred. That is clear. We are not children. Ask, ask a five-year-old what they want for Christmas. They'll say a Ferrari. You wouldn't say that's a good idea. It's too expensive and you cannot drive it. Whatever we need and want, we try everything to get. But there are moments where we have to accept and step aside. Now, that is everything that Jurgen Klopp isn't during his time as Liverpool manager when it comes specific to his relationship with FSG. And the next quote is like puts that one on on blast. And we'll share that one here in a moment. Do you think this is Klopp just too frustrated at this point of a long, long season, too many of the same questions, and one, Paul, he's really irritated with ownership, or two, once again, similar to Dortmund, he's run out of answers. And once Jurgen Klopp runs out of answers, all his big smiling, huge teeth, happy-go-lucky hugs is no longer so likable. And all of a sudden, he's like Bill Belichick looking at you across the podium. And he's just another irritated coach who really hates doing these goddamn press conferences. Yeah, this feels like when you're, like, when you're told to get big and yell and make yourself big with, you know, the scare away, like the mountain lion or, bear. Bobcat or whatever, right? You're the bear. Like, I just think, like, when he is vulnerable – like he does this, he does this really emotional reaction to, to sort of like, I think he, you know, like, I guess you could say it's bullying a room. Right. But I don't think it's, I don't picture it as bullying because I think he's doing it out of fear. I really do like fear of like not being able to provide the right answer or to, to put out this sort of like the shell of himself, which is this sort of charismatic, fun, loving, manager you know i mean everyone's at their best when they're winning but nobody's better than at their best when jurgen's winning right because i mean he's just he's got the jokes and he's pulling the strings and he's doing the hugs and the fist bumps and the high fives and all that stuff i just think he struggles in, in, in these moments when he doesn't have answers and it comes out with, as anger um and i think this is a this is low-hanging fruit i really do like i found it super disingenuous I really don't like it, especially off the back of, you know, knowing that we had options for center backs during a center back crisis, knowing that we've had options for midfield during a midfield crisis and knowing that, you know, he wanted plan A and no plan B. And then we couldn't agree on a plan B. And now we have, you know, the, the crisis is worsened. So, yeah, I didn't like that at all. I didn't. I, yeah. Yeah, I personally wasn't a fan of the other quotes, and I really wasn't a fan of this one because this is the quote here to me. That is the one that's actually that they can hang on. People can write articles on, and I think this is the one that feeds into all the FSG out and the dissension within amongst the supporters. So, when you have a budget and somebody tells you the prices, what can you do? The decision of the budget comes from the owners, and the other decisions come from us. If the budget is the budget, then we have to do what we can do. And for me, that is 
five times worse than the Ferrari quote because what that says is is one, the prices are set by others. That's basically actually not saying my guys won't pay. It's saying Dortmund thinks he's worth 170 million and we don't. So like we can't we don't get to set the price on players we want. That's the first part of that. I'm fine with that. But it is a little misleading because it almost makes it sound like like ownership doesn't meet the valuation of these players. He has been the one who has turned down the opportunity to sign players based on his valuation of them. See Nunez, see maybe Tashemi, but definitely Nunez in the in the offseason. Um, other players like Agarte and, and a few others that have been offered up at times that he seems like he has made passes on. My biggest problem with that whole question, though, is, is he has never said boo to this ownership group. If anything, he has always backed it. And for in this moment, it seems very petty to me. On April 14th or 15th, whatever day that press conference was, to in any way put any fuel on the fire that there's dissension within the administration side of Liverpool Football Club just makes absolutely no sense unless... There are real cracks, and he is starting to see like that maybe he doesn't want to be there. Because I'll say this, and I almost typed this up in Discord, but I knew it wouldn't go over well, especially with my support of this person. What he said is nowhere near what Antonio Conte did at Tottenham, and don't anyone put those words in my mouth. <laughs> yep. But if Antonio Conte said what Jurgen Klopp said, both those quotes that I just put up on my screen, every one of our people would be saying, this is a guy trying to get fired. This is a guy who doesn't want to be there anymore. This is a guy, this is what it sounds like when someone starts to check out of a club. Don't at me or get mad people. I'm not saying Klopp shouldn't be the manager next year. I'm not saying he wasn't excited today, but these are the types of cracks that we would poke holes at. If it were someone at United, Conte or Mourinho at Spurs or even like Arteta losing his mind in a crazy press conference saying weird ass shit that doesn't make any sense. Cause some of the stuff coming out of Jurgen Klopp's mouth right now only makes sense. If you look at it through the cynical eyes of the, of the jaded supporter that we are sometimes when we look at other clubs. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great point. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. There's just and there's just too many contradictions. I mean, we talk about this and it's like, oh, Jurgen Klopp's not backed, but the same person that says Jurgen Klopp's not financially backed is the same person that says we don't buy stars, we make them. And it's like, okay, so you don't have it both ways. If you have a budget and you can't work within that budget, then you're not confident in your ability to develop players. And I, I don't like it's to me, it's like I I I think Jurgen just has a problem adapting to plan A. Like, and I think that's been proven throughout his entire career from a, a squad management standpoint, all the way through a tactical standpoint. And, and so like, uh, you know, and that's, that's why I say that this squad is in the state that it's in as a collective failure across the board between ownership, backroom staff, manager, all the way through. And I just, I don't know. The, the having to pick one side of the fence just seems so weird to me. And I know everybody's kind of got their their sort of 
predisposed agendas or like sort of opinions based on certain feelings on certain issues with the club. And that's totally fine. I just think uh, it just, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me uh, to, to have to pick one side. And I think, you know, for me, it's, it, it all boils down to just the facts and the facts indicate that lately there is some derision in the back of the house. There is some conflict somewhere, but I also think that if, you know, if Jurgen feels like, he feel if he really feels like he he does in those quotes, then he should not have signed three separate extensions with this club. Like I would think that a manager, if he's not financially backed and can't go out and get what he wants to get to compete, he doesn't stay because he loves the club and the the city. Like that's I'm sorry, like it makes us feel good as supporters. That's not how that's not what happens though. So I understood. I understood the second extension. It's the last one that he signed after yep. starting to yep. lose the veteran players and seeing the rebuild and deciding he wanted to be part of it. If 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 he didn't believe that That's this recent. ownership group ha- had the finances and were going to give him the backing, now the landscape might have changed with new ownerships coming in and things changing in the league, and maybe they thought different investment and Redbird was going to add more money and. Maybe there are changes because things change in business. But I'll tell you this right now. He's here through 2026 with a contract. We can't have three more years of this level of, of this Ergen Klopp because he will he will make us forget all about the hugs and the fist pumps and running out on the pitch and dancing in the center with Allie and all that. Because, you know, the people in Dortmund started loving him again five years after he left. They didn't miss him. When he left, they were excited to get Farmer. They were excited to get Tuchel because they wanted a change because it had got stale. And because he got to the point where it was no longer enjoyable to watch him manage that club. And at yeah. times for me personally, I'm going to speak for Galley, and you can all get mad at me. You've done it before. At times it's been enjoyable for me to watch him manage this team this year, yelling at people, taking it out on fourth officials when we're playing terrible. Like, and and these are things that we get on other coaches for, but it's easy when you love him because he's your guy and it's easy to hug him, but it's fine when you're winning, when you start losing and then quotes like this trickle out, it gets, it gets tougher to follow. So I'm just going to chalk this up as everybody had a bad year. Everyone had it rough. We're going to come back fresh. We're going to have new faces. He's going to be reinvigorated. So we got a couple minutes left, Paul. I wanted to take a quick look at the top and the bottom of the table, and we'll start at the part that I think is a little bit more intriguing. Maybe it's lost a little bit of its luster the last few weeks um, with multiple wins by Crystal Palace Wolves and Bournemouth, believe it or not, um, really kind of separating themselves from what looked like it could be like one of like the all-time most chaotic relegation battles of all time. So looking at this, Which three teams go down? I actually think it's going to be the three that are at the bottom. I really do. I think Southampton could move up again. I think Leicester could finish dead last and Southampton move up a little bit. But I don't know where Forest like, I don't know where the goals are going to come from. I yeah, think Everton, gone. I think Everton, like, they're trash, but they, they at least have some cohesive stuff going on defensively. 
where they can possibly squeak out some some low low scoring draws. I think Leeds has got enough. I think they've got some nice attacking pieces. Um, and, and you know, Bournemouth had a January that saved them. Like they really like they would have gone down had they not gone out in January and bought some nice pieces. Um, but in credit to them, because remember, uh, I was going to say we got to do this. We got to do this where we revisit our our season. Oh, I, I I was about to we, I was about to raise my hand and be like because we were going to say that Bournemouth was going to be historically bad. Yeah, I, I basically said they were going down every week for the first like eight weeks of the season. I think at one point they were eleventh in the table, and I was like, they're going down. They'll finish dead last. And for a while, it looked like I could be right, and then. They, they rebounded. I think everyone from West Ham up is is genuinely safe right now. Yep. I've always yep. said all along, I think West Ham is safe on their talent because I think at the end of the day, they'll figure out a way. There are a few run-ins that are tougher than others. Everton is one of them. I'll be honest with you. I don't know why I say this, and and I I think Leicester will find a way to stay up, and I, I just think really? that they'll do just enough. But, I, I mean, I'm talking Ugh. like Everton last year. I think they'll finish 17. They look so bad to me. I, I know they look bad, but I still think for a man, if you ask me right now, what teams here have the most talent? And I think Dean Smith is a good enough coach as a caretaker manager to see them across the line. Um. You know, he did it with Villa. He's done it with other teams. I know he couldn't keep Norwich up, but nobody was keeping that Norwich team led by Favre up. Um, and they have big matches, winnable matches. Forrest has a really, really rough run in. Like, I think Forrest yeah. and Southampton go down purely based on the fact that Forrest did everything wrong in building a team. And I think Southampton, we were talking about, they were buying to go to the championship in the summer. Um, they bought pieces that they can sell for a profit. They'll go down. They'll probably come back up with a new manager. I think Leicester finds a way to stay up. And I, I really do believe, I think it comes down to Leeds and Everton. Um, I That Everton team, you know, we talk about where's Forrest going to get their goals. You know, that Everton team gets no goals. Like no goals, and they you give up two to a Fulham team that's on the beach at home without Mitrovic, and like you got a Sean Dice led team at Goodison. Like, I just the craziest thing for me is is Everton hosts Bournemouth the final match of the year, <laughs> and to think Everton <laughs> could be playing a match where they have to beat Bournemouth at home to stay up. And their fans literally will go into <laughs> it with be, like their hands and they'll be over their faces. dogs on it too. Be, yeah, it I, it just scares me. Like, there's some crazy ones there. Um, so it'll be interesting there to see what happens here at the bottom of the table. Um, just for anyone not paying attention because we were only really focusing on the relegation battle. It is wonderful to see Chelsea in their rightful position. Look at that. In the bottom half of the table. Um. Let's take a quick look as we wrap up the show here. Minute or so left at the top of the table. Arsenal, well, you know, just doing what I thought they'd do all season long, which is give the title to Man City. Uh, we probably have I more time. I just rubbing day. your hands watching. That. I mean, I just, I just saw it. I saw Bowen score that goal. I thought two things to myself. <laughs> I wonder if Paul still thinks this guy stinks. And two, <laughs> I wonder if he still thinks Arteta is a good manager. Um, but 
City does what they do. City gets green check marks. Like the the there's two things that you know after January first, right? Oh, every God, day you go after January first of every year. Every day you get one day closer to New Year's, and Man City gets one day closer to playing perfect football. Because it does feel like they, they just give everybody a three month head start. Like. Well, it's like they want something to compete with in the second half. Right. So they give you a run out. They're like, ah, yeah, yeah. You know when you go to the dog track and back when they used to let dogs race on dog tracks and they'd have one of them bunnies run on the thing. Yeah. And it was they call it the rabbit. And they're like, rabbit, rabbit, go. And then all the fucking greyhounds would run after it. Because if not, the stupid fucking dogs wouldn't chase anything. They would just stay in their traps and not move. <laughs> but they need the stupid bunny. Like City needs the bunny. Like, they just yeah. need something yeah. to run out in front of it. And then Kyle Walker just starts fucking chasing. I mean, it's usually a hooker. It's usually a hooker in a small skirt. But. Um, Even Grayless just out there competing with DWIs. Yeah, exactly. I just, uh, I'd probably rather hang out with a fucking group of greyhounds. Um, I think if I really look at this top of this table, you know, the top three are set at this point to me. United's win this week probably solidifies their top four hopes. You know, everyone still holds out hope we can run out the table. For me, it's it's a, you know, fit of complete because we're not going to win eight in a row. And even if we did, it's only 71 points. And I don't know that that's enough, even with this sides here. Um, not enough gets talked about Villa. I made the comment a couple weeks on the pod. Um, they've secured the third most points of any side in England since Emery replaced Gerrard only behind City and Arsenal. And Ollie Watkins is one of three Premier League players to register to register 10-plus Premier League goals in three straight seasons. The only other two players, Mo Salah and Harry Kane. Pretty good fucking company, Ollie. Um, yeah. I, I would say right now, if I were a betting man, and I am, I think the smart bet might actually be betting on Unai Emery's guys to run down Newcastle for fourth rather than either Tottenham or even Brighton. Because as good as Brighton is going forward, they're still very susceptible to give up a leaky goal to a lesser opponent on the back end. And I think we're seeing in Villa, they don't give up cheap goals. They score good goals. And they have players on players. And for as good as Ollie Watkins was on Saturday morning, Jacob Ramsey was even better. And uh, for someone who was once on this podcast and called him a cheap Jude Bellingham alternative from the same area of the country, if I were Liverpool and I can't afford the Bellingham I want, I might go into the Birmingham area for a young attacking box-to-box midfielder who can do just about everything and has a whole lot of upside in Jacob Ramsey. Because to me, he looks every bit the part of a top, top quality player. And the scary part is, it might be hard to pry him out of Aston Villa at this point or Ollie Watkins out of Aston Villa at this point because they got money and they're going to have European football in a big, big stadium. And honestly, there's nothing better than big, big nights in that park. Like, people forget that's where England would play their matches before Wembley was renovated. Like, 
Villa Park is a enormous stadium with a lot of uh, history. I think it would be awesome if they could finish in fourth or fifth place and get themselves at least into the knockout rounds of the Europa League. So we'll see what happens here. I'm hoping for a complete Tottenham capitulation. Get Villa and Brighton into those uh, spots. You know, I know all the Liverpool supporters out there say we got to play in Europe. You got to want Europe. I think a year off from Europe might work just fine, but I know we're supposed to want to compete for all trophies, but I'd like to avoid the conference. What about you, Paul? Yeah, I don't want any business going to like a stand country on a Thursday night and then having to turn around and play within 72 hours. No, thank you. Yeah, the plastic pitches, I will uh, avoid like the plague. So we can let that uh, resonate here. We'll all resonate with the idea that, well, Arsenal has probably just done the Arsenal thing they could do, which is give it away, which kind of giving it away to to West Ham and David Moyes makes it even more fitting and kind of fun. Um, It'll be interesting. I will say that Wednesday afternoon match against City is going to be really real theater, like good theater TV, because I honestly think Arsenal is going to give you a virtuoso performance that shows they deserve to win the title by getting anything at City. Or I honestly believe it's going to be five, nothing at the half and Arteta is going to get sent off. And Arsenal's going to finish with like three guys on the pitch because they they go as far as their manager. And I think that you see that every time he gets tight, they get tight on the pitch. And I, I, I think you start to see it. And I think from Saka's missed penalty to Gabrielle's terrible penalty given away, I think you're starting to see the cracks. In Weird decision time. for Saka to take that pen, Galley. It was definitely a little odd only because Gabriel took the one the week before, but Saka had taken them all year long for him. He's supposed yeah. to be their linchpin, and he is the, the leader of the club. You know, if he buries it, no one questions it. What was weird to me was Gabriel held it the entire time under his arm like he was waiting to take it, Yeah, bounced it, and handed it to him like, this is yours, almost like it was a, like it was a, a facade, like they were trying to make – West Ham and Fabianski yeah. think Gabrielle was taking it. So yeah. he'd prepare for Gabrielle and then got up there and, and was ready for Saka. And, you know, luckily the kid in the fifth row didn't get a broken nose. Cause I originally was like, I don't know why Jesus didn't take that because I thought he'd be the taker. But then when I saw Jesus took the one two games ago, Saka wasn't on the pitch. So he wasn't on. He had sat yeah. that match and that's why yeah. he took it. I think I think it's hard once you give a guy the job. He hadn't missed one for club yet. It's just a terrible penalty, right? I mean, we've seen the best goal scorer in 15 years at Liverpool miss two in a row. Yep. So I think we have to understand that they, co- they come and they go. But here's the thing. Misses like that stay in your mind. Oh, yeah. And yep. if, I'm, if I'm Arsenal, I'm worried – that the player that I needed to ride to this title is questioning whether or not he just gave it away to our number one competitor. And I, it makes me really nervous. So we'll wrap it up on that. We went over tonight. We had lots of great topics as always, please like share, give us comments, um, send people our way, remind people about the podcast. If you have ideas, 
think we can change it up, let us know. And if you'd like to get involved, send us a message. We're always looking for new contributors. Hopefully, we're back next week with a win against Forrest, and we'll have another great conversation. We'll be here Wednesday and Friday for the morning shows, Thursday night. We will also have the podcast as usual. For myself and Paul, have a good night, and hopefully, Timuchin will find his way back next Monday.